everyone. Welcome back to JCM Prepare the Way. My name is Carol and I'm the host of this program and we are so glad that you're tuning in. Before we get going, I just want to give a quick shout out to our podcast patrons out there and just say thank you. Thank you all so much for your support. It means a lot and it really helps us do what we do. So thank you. And if you would like to learn more about what it means to be a podcast patron and support us, uh, we would love that. And just follow the link on the description of this episode. Well, today is titled, Judgment Begins in the House of God. That's the thought that came to me as I've been reading through a book about the Scottish Reformation. I know, I know, you're probably thinking, what is she reading? (laughs) I recently bought a book written by John Knox, who some of you have heard of. But for those of you who, who haven't, he was a man who lived in the 1500s. And he has this book called The Reformation in Scotland. And I'd never read a firsthand account of this event, but for whatever reason, I came across it and I felt the nudge to buy it. And here I am digging in. And just to let you in on something about me is that besides reading and studying the Bible, the books that I I tend to gravitate towards, they are Christian writers who are typically no longer alive. So whether it's John Knox from the 1500s or William Gurnall, oh boy, that's somebody that you guys should have on your shelf. He has a tremendous series of books on the armor of God. Don't forget his name, William Gurnall. He's from the 1600s. Or even E.M. Bounds, a profound man of prayer. That's another one you should have on your shelf. He's from the 1800s, but he has a powerful book on prayer. Or even the strong voice of Leonard Ravenhill from the 1900s. And others like that, because I think what I appreciate about all of them is that they are men and a few women in there whose, whose lives are now proven. You know what I mean? It's, it's that they finished their race well with many of them still preaching and writing, even into old age. I mean, they didn't stop. Most of them didn't even retire and they were doing it without a big audience or sometimes no audience at all. They preached and prayed and passed on their knowledge to others, not for selfish gain, but out of sheer love for Christ, remaining faithful and obedient to him to the very end, no matter the cost. And their writings challenge me. And I can't say that about too many authors today. In fact, I believe their writings would challenge you too if you gave them a chance. It is true iron sharpening iron. Now, That's not saying I don't have modern-day authors on my shelf. I do, only not that many anymore. I purged my library some years ago, and I only kept the books that I felt truly aligned with the scriptures. And if I'm being perfectly honest, I'm not sure exactly who to trust out there right now in Christian circles. There is so much compromise, you guys, going on within Christianity, so much mixture, even in seminaries, sorry to say. But not only that, just the abundant amount of ministry scandals that are plaguing the church. It's all so very concerning. In these ministry scandals, you're talking about hidden sins like sexual immorality and greed. They are being exposed in large denominations, independent ministries, mega churches, you name it, well-known people. And it isn't pretty. In fact, it's disheartening. And I imagine it's very grievous to God's heart because it's causing pain in his body. Christians who have supported and trusted leaders and other people in these organizations for years 
are now so angry for being deceived by them that they're literally walking away from faith altogether. And that should concern us. And making matters worse is learning about the cover-ups behind it, whether from board members or staff, for years, making you wonder, wow, if it wasn't exposed, would it have continued unchecked? Making it apparent to me that the current model of ministry we've created over the decades is failing. It's fraught with unaccountability and many other dangers. And I don't know about you, but that verse, teachers are held to a stricter judgment, puts the fear of God into me. I can't tell you how many times I have pleaded with God to not let me teach if I wasn't supposed to. Break down my car on the way to the Bible study. Give me another passion. But here I am, and I am still trembling at those words. I just need to say this for a minute before we kick into this message. Anytime we teach, friends, whether from a pulpit or you lead a Bible study or you're teaching God's word in your home, ponder the responsibility of teaching God's holy word to others. It's a weighty thing, which is why judgment will come to the church because of his word, and even more so as the day draws nigh. No matter what denomination you're part of, no matter what ministry you're involved with, no matter what church you go to, always remember, every single person that is sitting under someone belongs to Christ, not them. So how they steward them, how they steward the resources of those organizations should be of utmost importance to us, but also, more importantly, it's probably of utmost importance to God as well. Don't think for a minute He is not fully aware of everything that is going on in his churches, good or bad. So for me, the verdict is out on popular mainstream figures in the church and whoever is writing all these books, I'm sorry to say, which is why I'm drawn to teachers and peoples whose lives have been proven, who have truly lived their life to the full, modeling what true Christianity should look like. Their talk matched their walk. Because as I said, judgment is coming, but judgment is also here right now in the house of God. As Peter said, it would. And it needs to come. It needs to be sifted out. We need to get rid of the fakes and the flakes. And I'm telling you, it's not going to stop until Christ's true followers are rooted out of every false system and doctrine and made a remnant for him. And every generation, God has a remnant. Because church is not a building. It's Christ's body. His body, his body of born-again, blood-bought, new creations in him, saints of the Most High, of which he is the head. Far too long, man has tried to make himself the head, creating man-made traditions, idolizing his education and intellect or position. And as we've seen, as the head goes, so goes the body. Well, friends, the body of Christ in America is going the wrong way. So we need to evaluate some things. We need to put the brakes on and take a good look around us and ask ourselves, what are we doing? What are we doing? Anyway, so I picked up this book, The Reformation in Scotland, and I got to tell you, I'm enthralled. And it even is written in some of that old English in some places, you know, where the sentences are kind of flip-flopped and you're kind of scratching your head as you're going through it. So I have to read it ever so slowly in order to fully grasp the depths and lengths that men took during this time 
for the gospel. I mean, I'm reading about their boldness and courage and faithfulness and pure love they had for Christ and his word, even to the point of death. And for me, it's such a breath of fresh air and encouragement to my soul in today's version of Christianity. What a reminder of what it's all about. Because it's not about a stage. It's not about a personality. It's not even about the money. It's so much bigger than that, you guys. And I believe that's where God is going to bring us back to. We talk a lot about love today, right? Loving others. But don't forget that the first commandment is to love God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. Think about the magnitude of that statement. All your heart. Having an undivided heart, unalloyed with anything else. All your soul. Having your will and thoughts given wholly over to him. All your mind. Having your mind fixed above on the bigger picture, not yourself. Those are the kind of people I'm reading about in this book. People who loved and followed Christ and obeyed his word to the very end. They were not followers of men, but Christ and Christ alone. So let me first set the stage of what was taking place in this book. Many of you out there probably already know about all the events surrounding the Scottish Reformation. Well, I didn't. Uh, But in a way, um, this time in history, at least to me, it's like working through a game of chess. There's a lot of moving parts. You've got empires, alliances, you've got corruption, all of that. But what I want to focus on in this whole series of events that was taking place is on God's people. That's what, I, that's what I'm drawn to in the book. His people, the many martyrs during this time. What were God's people do, doing during such a shift? This book is a historical account of events that took place in the life of a man named John Knox. And he's a Scottish theologian, a minister, but also a reformer. And he, along with other Protestant reformers at the time, were participants in the unfolding drama of 16th century Scotland concerning what's called the Reformation, which is where Scotland broke with the papacy of Rome, the Catholic Church. And John became a strong opponent and antagonist of Mary, Queen of Scots, the Queen of Scotland, from 1542 to 1567, who was a strong Catholic. So you can see how things are starting to build. Now, something important to understand is that throughout the Middle Ages, Scotland had always been run by not one, but two rulers. You had the reigning monarch, but you also had the Catholic Church. It was the king who would collect the taxes, call men to battle, and lay down the law. But most ordinary people owed their true allegiance not to him, but to the church. And so clerics, such as bishops and abbots, and even the pope himself— had always been a key part of Scottish society. And since these men were close to the king, it meant that no monarch could rule without the counsel of his religious leaders. Well, by the end of the 15th century, the church in Scotland had become massively influential and wealthy. It had vast tracts of land, huge abbeys and cathedrals, but it was also bloated and corrupt. Where bishops were living in splendor and Scottish cathedrals were some of the most glorious buildings in the country, 
ordinary priests, often ill-trained and illiterate, were on the edge of poverty, and their churches were literally falling down through neglect. Well, during this time, a change in leadership occurred. In 1513, a battle took place known as the Battle of Flodden, and in it, the reigning king of Scotland, James IV, and most of the Scots nobles were slain leaving behind 18-month-old James V to succeed his father as the new king. However, since the new king was but an infant, chief power was put into the hands of another man, Archbishop Beaton. He, along with other bishops, essentially ruled the realm. Meanwhile, a short five years later in Germany, a German monk and theologian named Martin Luther published his 95th thesis attacking the sale of indulgences by the Catholic Church, which sparked off protests against Catholicism all over Europe. The teaching, Justification by Faith, ignited a spiritual revival and social revolution. And since this occurred in the early days of printing, the invention of the printing press, and Scotland did not have its own press at that time, Scotland found itself one of the last to join in. But when they did, the staunch Catholics of Scotland's nobility felt threatened by this new movement and retaliated. And leading the retaliation was Archbishop Beaton. So the stage is set for a Catholic-Protestant showdown. Again, I'm just trying to give some context. I'm going to be focused on the people. Because you see, for the first time, the Bible was in public circulation, and it was quickly being passed around throughout Europe and into other parts of the world. No longer were people told what it said. They could now read it for themselves. And as people read the word and studied it, God lit the furnace of zeal in their hearts to take his word, his full counsel, far and wide. Regular, everyday folks like you and me, common people, were finding themselves teaching neighbors and friends scripture and in some cases, sending some of those common folk to go up against established, powerful governmental systems. God was moving. Well, in Scotland, one such man with that zeal was the Abbot of Fern, a student under Luther whose name was Patrick Hamilton. He arrived back in Scotland and began to preach justification by faith to the powers that be at the young age of 23. By 24, he was condemned by Archbishop Beaton and burned at the stake at St. Andrew's Castle, becoming Scotland's first Reformation martyr. The fame of his reasonings and doctrine troubled the clergy so much that they feared that by him, their kingdom was in danger. News of his death spread, especially the nature of it. You see, when the powder failed to ignite the kind of blaze that would take his life quickly, guards ran to get more. And while they were gone, Hamilton suffered for six long hours, burning to death. And in his suffering, it's recorded, he cried out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. How long shall darkness overwhelm this realm? How long wilt thou suffer the tyranny of men? And as he was crying out, the friar next to him was heard shouting, Convert, heretic! In his torment, Hamilton replied to the friar and reminded him of the future tribunal seat of Christ, letting this man know that one day 
he would be judged. Well, within a few days of Hamilton's death, that friar died too. But something happened also after Hamilton's death. The first seed of the martyrs for Scotland was in the ground. And when good seeds are planted in the when good seeds are planted in the ground, friends, a good harvest is produced. Tertullian from the second century said it best: "The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church." And boy, is it! And boy, was it! Outside pressures like persecution and martyrdom, friends, is what grows a church. Inside pressures from false prophets and teachers and the like destroy a church. And it's been this way since the very beginning. Thinking about Hamilton, the threat the church felt from him is no less true than the threats felt from some churches today as they feel towards Christians. If we're not careful in our churches, in our ministries, we can create an environment, a system that feels a lot like our own kingdom, right? And so to keep those kingdoms the way we want, we tend to hire the right people to come around and support that vision. And in many cases, it's a bunch of yes-men. This is where the lack of accountability I mentioned comes in today. And then when someone comes along like a Hamilton, professing truth from the Word of God, it challenges the leadership, and they feel threatened. It happens every day, which is why there are so many walking, wounded Christians among us. Christians wounded by their own brethren, much like these men were in Scotland. They may not have been burned at the stake today, but they are no less executed by words and accusations. But like Hamilton said, there's a tribunal coming where all will stand before Christ and give account. Well, after the death of Hamilton, then I'm reading about a man named Henry Forrest, a Benedictine monk who, after a long imprisonment in the Sea Tower of St. Andrews, was also sentenced to die by fire by the same man, Archbishop Beaton, for no other crime, but he had a New Testament in English. Another young man was talking in his sleep, only to wake up and be accused of heresy and burned at the stake also. But despite all this, God kept raising up more voices. Even merchants and mariners coming to Scotland helped spread the gospel. Two such men were Norman Gourlay and David Stratton. But they too were accused of heresy and brought in for judgment. Archbishop Beaton had both men hanged and burned. But the knowledge of God increased anyway. Partly by reading, Knox says, partly by brotherly fellowship, which is said in those days to have been a profound comfort, as you can imagine, but chiefly in Scotland, by the arrival of more merchants and more mariners coming in from other countries who were bringing the messages they were reading in the Bible. This is how it all began. One messenger after another, and one death after another, with more seeds going into the ground. I can't help when I read this, to go back to Paul's words when he said, even though he suffered as an evildoer, the word of God is not chained, 2 Timothy 2.9. Even Paul suffered religious persecutors. But no one can chain God's word. No government on earth can chain God's word. No one can stop his truth. And I've been saying this for almost 10 years now. But I believe God is going to bring everything back full circle. 
The formal model of church we see today and are familiar with today, created by men, it'll still be around. But there will be a remnant of courageous believers that will walk that narrow path as stated in Matthew chapter 7, much like the early church of Acts did. And they're going to look like that church of Acts, meeting together in homes, taking care of each other, serving each other, and boldly taking the gospel to their neighbors, their cities, their governors, their nation's leaders, whoever, and doing so fully prepared to lose their life for it. Like Nazi Germany and places like China, who have state-sponsored churches dictating what they can and can't say, I believe that unless we repent in America and do things different, we are moving towards a state-sponsored church here, and it'll be here before you know it, and eventually a global church under the Antichrist system. It will have the appearance of godliness, but be nothing of the sort. But then on the other side, There will also be a professing church, an underground church, one that meets in secret, a church that lives and dies by the word of God. That's where we're headed, friends. You can already see the makings of that division. And God is daily pulling a remnant out of the corrupt models we see today and getting them ready. Meanwhile, back in Scotland in my book, effigies were being made of the reformers and burned for spectacle as a picture of triumph, but they couldn't stop the movement. The gospel entered the cloisters, the house of the friars, monks, and canons. Knox said that the very simple people understood and confessed. But this angered the bishops so much that they gathered up those priests, those friars, and common men who were enlightened by the word of God and burned them all in one big fire. Can you imagine that? But even that didn't stop the word of God. It reminds me of Paul's imprisonment in his letter to the Philippians, right? That although he was imprisoned, it turned out for the furtherance of the gospel, becoming evident in the whole palace guard and even in Caesar's household. Friends, no matter who comes against you or who tries to silence you, the word of God cannot be chained in you. It reached the Roman emperor's home in Paul's day and even the monks and friars of Scotland who were protected by the papacy. When the spirit of God moves, there is no stopping it. I don't care who you are. You either better get on that train or it's going to blow right by you. John Knox mentioned another man, George Weishart. He became acquainted with him one year and the very next, Weishart was condemned and burned. Knox says something interesting about Weishart when he came to the fire. He says that he sat down upon his knees and then rose up again. And then three times he says these words, O thou Savior of the world, have mercy upon me. Father of heaven, I commend my spirit unto thy holy hands. Three times. But then he turned to the people And he said this, I beseech you, Christian brethren and sisters, be not offended at the word of God for the affliction and torments which ye see prepared for me. But I exhort you, love the word of God and suffer patiently and with a comfortable heart for the word's sake, 
which is your undoubted salvation and everlasting comfort. He goes on. Moreover, I pray you, show my brother and sisters, which have heard me oft, that they cease not to learn the word of God, which I taught unto them. For no persecutions in this world last not. For this cause I was sent, that I should suffer this fire for Christ's sake. Consider, therefore, and behold my visage. Wow. Then he prayed for his accusers. He forgave them and asked Christ to forgive them too. And after his death, people began to detest the cruelty of what was happening. What a testimony this man left behind. It makes me think of Corey Ten Boom. Have you, have you guys ever heard of her? If not, I encourage you to look her up or watch the old movie, um, The Hiding Place. She survived the horrors of the Holocaust as a Christian in a concentration camp because she had God's word hidden in her heart. She fed off his word. She had every reason to fill her heart with hate when she was freed, but rather she filled it with love and forgave her enemies. Friends, if there is any time to push pause and examine yourself, examine your faith, it's now. It's now. Ask God to show you his ways, to teach you his paths, to lead you in his truth and teach you. For he alone is the salvation of our souls. Psalm 25, 4. Ask him to get you ready to refine you. Ask yourself, do you love the word of God as George Weishart exhorted to those watching his death? Are you following it? Living by it? Even the hard parts? Are you sharing it with others? What will be said of you and me when we leave here? What testimony are we leaving that glorifies God and strengthens others? Later, King James V had given himself over to obey the tyranny of the bishops and made a solemn vow that none of the men preaching the word of God should be spared if suspected of what they considered heresy, even if it meant it was his own son. This is how fierce things got. But God kept raising up new voices. They couldn't kill these men fast enough. Two young men, Geronimus Russell, a friar, and a man named Kennedy, not yet 18 years old, were accused of the crime of heresy. It's recorded that at their sentencing, Kennedy, the young one, almost fainted and would have recanted. But all of a sudden, the Spirit of God began to work in him. Knox says the inward comfort began to burst forth, changing how he looked and how he spoke as he began to suddenly and openly give glory to God in front of all these men. And Geronimus, he looked at his accusers and said, This is your hour and the power of darkness. Now sit ye as judges, and we stand wrongfully accused and more wrongfully to be condemned. But the day shall come when our innocency shall appear, and ye shall see your own blindness to your everlasting confusion. Go, go forward and fulfill the measure of your iniquity. He was filled with holy boldness. He wasn't afraid. 
He knew what waited, waited for them and him on the other side of things. And you know, friends, when I look at the scandals today in the church and in ministries, the abuse of power, the abuse of money, the abuse of positions, it's not much different than what these men are experiencing. They're up against people who have lost all fear of the Lord. But God knows how to take the foolish things to confound the wise, doesn't he? Those men back then may have ignored those men, those new reformers, but I bet they aren't ignoring those words now. Strong words from these young men, strong words. And yet those condemning them didn't budge. Those two men were taken to the place of their execution and burned to death. One being 17 years old. How many 17-year-olds do you know that would stand like that for God's word, for God's truth, let alone die for it? To truly serve God, we are told by Peter to arm ourselves to suffer. First Peter is a powerful letter about living for Christ and suffering for Christ. In fact, chapter 4 is an exhortation to that. And it's also where he says, For the time has come for judgment to begin in the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Verse 17. The word judgment here means a sentence pronounced, a verdict, a condemnation, the decision resulting from an investigation. 2,000 years ago, Peter is writing about judgment beginning in the house of God. That means 2,000 years ago, his investigation started. And it has been an ongoing investigation ever since. Make no mistake, God is watching over his church. The seven letters of Revelation couldn't make things any clearer. Behave yourself. Repent of your wrong. I see you, he basically says. I walk among the lampstands, the churches. I walk amongst you unawares. Christ walks among every church, my friend, every congregation of believers, every prayer meeting, every Bible study, any gathering where people are gathering in his name and trying to read his word. And he's performing an investigation so that when we get to the judgment seat of Christ one day, He's collected all the evidence, hasn't he? He'll have a report on every impropriety, every false accusation, and every innocent soul condemned. He'll know the false worship from the true worship. He'll know every hidden thing. He'll know every lie. He'll know every slander. He'll know every scandal. The time has come, Peter says, saying that 2,000 years ago. What's it like now? We still have time to repent and return, to repent of our pride, our complacency, our silence in the face of evil immorality, all of it. And I pray we do. I really do. Because I fear what's coming upon the Church of America. I fear what's coming upon America, what's already manifesting itself. I fear it with holy fear. Like Geronimus said, we're living in the hour and power of darkness, and it will go forward until the full measure of its iniquity is finished. It will. 
all must be fulfilled according to the scriptures. Right now, it's as if it's casting its spell over us, and it is no respecter of persons. The sons of darkness have no respect to the judgment of God. Pray, pray that you are not deceived in this hour. The enemy is at work to destroy the word of God and neutralize any witness to his word. Paul says evil men and imposters will grow worse and worse, and they have been since then, beginning with the apostles, where all were martyred except one. And even after them, faithful followers of Christ who were condemned and killed by wild beasts for sport or were tied to lampposts and used as human torches for Nero's parties. It won't stop there. Paul says it will grow worse and worse. How much worse has it grown since then? The Reformation of Scotland, 1,500 years after Paul, proves there was little to no mercy. Christians, 10 years ago, considered infidels were caged and lit on fire in the Middle East. And it will continue that way until a great falling away from faith happens, 2 Thessalonians 2, and the man of sin is revealed. People in the church, they're not prepared for persecution, and many will be deceived. And those willing to stand, I fear, will suffer the greatest of any generation before them. Because what's coming is going to be worse than any other age before it, the Bible says. If you are one who believes in the pre-tribulation rapture, boy, oh boy, I hope you're right. But I take the approach, hope for the best, but be prepared for the worst. Are you prepared if you're wrong about a pre-tribulation rapture? Are you prepared if your pastor is wrong about that? And you now have to live through the greatest trial of your life, the greatest test of your faith. Are you prepared for that? I say that in love. John Knox became a strong voice in the Reformation of Scotland, holding several interviews, conversations with Mary, Queen of Scots. So firm was he in his faith that people often quote what Mary, Queen of Scots, said about him. She said this, I fear the prayers of John Knox more than all the assembled armies of Europe. Now that's a message. That's a testimony. Can leadership in our country say that about the church today? That it fears the prayers of Christians in America more than all the armies or terrorists of the world? Or does the devil have us all hiding behind our 501c3s and the term Christian nationalism in order to prevent us from praying for our nation? Having run National Day of Prayer for our state and our state capital, I can tell you with all certainty why pa- all the reasons why pastors said they couldn't pray on that day, National Day of Prayer, all the excuses they gave. Can school boards say that about you? Can they, can they say that they fear the prayers of praying parents so much that they refuse to allow perverted curriculum in the school? What is being said about us? We will be judged for our works, friends, unto rewards. But faith without works is dead. And it's not just works like feeding the poor. It's a thing like prayer. It's our witness. It's walking in his word. It's obeying his word. We'll be judged for how we represent Christ. And maybe you don't care about that rewards. Maybe you just figure, hey, you know, as long as I'm in heaven, what do I care? Well, tell that to the man who buried his talent in the parable of the talents. He didn't get off quite so easy, did he? I really hope we have more fear of the Lord than that. 
When John Knox stood trial for treason, he made a profound point that he sees the poor flock of Christ in no less danger than any other time. He said, the devil has a cover upon his face now. Before, the devil came in his own face through open tyranny, seeking destruction. But now, the devil comes under the cloak of justice. Sound familiar? The leadership in the Scottish realm, both royalty and papacy, surrounded themselves with the counsel of flatterers and corruptors, much like people still do today. To the point, at one point, where one of the lords said to John Knox, You forget yourself. You are not in the pulpit. Where Knox answered, I am in the place where I am demanded of conscience to speak the truth. That's us, friends. We are demanded of conscience to speak the truth. We are commanded in Scripture to speak the truth in love. Our conscience, created in the image and likeness of God, demands it. Knox said, As touching nature, I am a worm on this earth, and yet subject of this commonwealth. That's us. We are but a worm on this earth, right? But we're subject to the government above us. But then he says, But as touching the office wherein it has pleased God to place me, I am a watchman, both over the realm and over the kirk of God. For that reason, I am bound in conscience to blow the trumpet publicly. Friends, we are bound to blow the trumpet. As I said in our podcast on Truth and Tolerance, our logo at JCM is a shofar. It's a trumpet to sound the alarm publicly, to awaken Christ's church to truth, to whatever sphere of influence he gives us. And it has not always been easy at times. But being in Christ gives us all, you and me and every blood-bought believer, it gives us all an office of appointment because we are his holy and royal priesthood. We carry the anointing and we carry the authority in his name, which means we are all watchmen over our places of appointment. Watchmen aren't just limited to men like John Knox. God has appointed boundaries for all of us and the time in which we live, Acts 17. You have been pre-appointed to live now, as have I, in a place of his choosing, a state, a city, a neighborhood, a place of assignment where you are to blow the shofar, blow the trumpet, and speak up for what God says is true. That's part of the works that goes with our faith. Because friends, If you can't see what is taking place all around us, then I encourage you with everything in me to pray to God and ask him to open up your understanding. We are being bombarded in every direction. Our eye gates, our ear gates, our minds, we are on sensory overload. As followers of Christ, we need to do better. We need to find a better way to do ministry in order to protect ourselves from error, greed, Celebrity Culture and Corruption. I'm not finished with the book yet, but it will be one that stays on my shelf. You're, you're, I'm assured of that. Like many others that challenge me to live fully for Christ. 
Paul never lost sight of the bigger picture. These men I'm reading about, they didn't lose sight of the bigger picture either. Christians in Iran right now, Christians in China, Rangoon, Turkey, suffering for the gospel, they have not lost sight of the bigger picture either. But have we? I hope this blesses you today. I look forward to our next time together. Take care. Thank you.